Have you ever dreamed of being able to make more money, live a better life, and have the financial freedom that's rightfully yours? Well now is your chance. With an engaging perspective and tone, your host Ryan Dement will guide you through your journey to financial freedom one step at a time. Let's get to it. Here is your host Ryan Dement. Hey guys, Ryan Dement from Chasing Financial Freedom Podcast. I hope you guys are having a great day. Today on the podcast, I have a guest that I'm very honored to speak with, Dave Combs. Dave, welcome into the podcast. Thank you, Ryan. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our great conversation today. Thank you, sir. We we met on a uh, matching website for podcasts, and you were able to introduce me into another one. And I have to first thank you for that. But the beautiful thing about this is we've had some conversation prior to all this going on. Could you let the audience know a little bit about your background and who you are, and then we'll get into your journey and your story? Sure. I'd be happy to. Well, I'm Dave Combs. Um, I live in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. I'm married to my wonderful wife, Linda. We've been married coming up on 52 years this June. Wow. And uh, that's quite a, quite a journey that we can talk about that, too. But she is a wonderful lady. And uh, I grew up in East Tennessee. I'm a product of the mountains of East Tennessee. Irwin is my hometown. It's a little village there nestled in the mountains of East Tennessee, right on the North Carolina border. And I grew up around music all my life. My Both my parents, my grandparents, uh, everybody around me seemed played an instrument. And I just, uh, it was a natural part of my life. It was uh, part of our church uh, I'm a Baptist, so in the Baptist church, we have a lot of hymn singing and choir music and organ and piano duets and all those kind of things. So music was a natural part of my life. And uh, I did not plan to be a professional musician to have a, my own music business initially. I went to college and got a math degree and a physics minor and uh, and learned how to program a computer. So I started my career out with a company called Western Electric, which is uh, was a part of the Bell system back then, as a computer programmer. I programmed COBOL programs. <clears throat> Some of your audience might be old enough to remember COBOL as a language, but yes, that, yes. Was, that was what I cut my teeth on. But IT has been a part of my life also since college. Uh, I, my whole career at, at AT&T and Western Electric, 22 and a half years, was involved in various aspects of technology. So technology is part of my background. And so, so technology, music, you, you have a full, you have a full gamut of, of life. And that's very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I got to ask, can you share with the viewers? And I know we just talked about it. Can you share the beautiful beach that you just shared with me? Cause that is peaceful. And I think that's a great piece to segue into a few other pieces. Well, I would be happy to. Let me <laughs> let's give myself a choose virtual background. Here's where I spent my last week uh, at the beach and uh, pretty much sitting on my, our deck, looking out at the Atlantic Ocean and the, the waves coming, crashing in and spending, spending just some relaxing time. Uh, get a little closer to the beach here. Uh, you can see that it's a very wide beach. It's called Sunset Beach in North Carolina. And it's just very peaceful and uh, it's a way to get away and kind of recharge your your uh, your senses and, and make sure that uh, 
everything is reset. You know, it gives you a reset. So I'm I'm really fresh now, back from my week <laughs> at the beach and ready to ready to roll here. <laughs> That's awesome. So I didn't mean to cut you off. So continue, but I just I digressed on that because I thought that was a beautiful uh, thought process to share. Well, thank you. You can interrupt me anytime. I, we're going to have a, a conversation here. It's not going to be dominated by my my telling stories, hopefully. So, uh, but <laughs> which I can do. And my wife says I throw in too many details sometimes, so I have to back off on the telling too much. But I started my musical journey. Right in the middle of my my uh, my professional journey with Western Electric AT and T, it was in 1981 that I sat down at my piano uh, and just played this song. Uh, you know, I, my, one of my ways of relaxing is to sit at the piano and play. If you're, I know a lot of your audience are going to if they play an instrument, they can they will agree that you know when they want to just relax, they pick up their guitar or go to the keyboard or saxophone, whatever uh, instrument that they play, just play something. And that's a very relaxing thing to do. Well, I sat down in 1981 in January, one evening after work, sit down at my piano. I just played this song and I didn't, it wasn't something that I tried to write. It wasn't something I'd heard before, but yet it was something that it seemed like I had, I had heard it before. It was kind of in my mind. It was just in, an inspiration to me. So I played this song, didn't think anything about it. A couple of days later, my wife, Linda, comes home from work and she says, Dave, what is the name of this song I've got stuck in my head all day long? And she said, you play it all on the piano all the time. And I said, and she hummed a little bit of it. And I said, well, you know, it doesn't have a name. It's just something I made up. She says, what? You made that up? I said, yeah, I did. And so she said, have you written it down? I said, well, no, I've, I've got it up here. It's not going anywhere. She said, oh, no, you've got to write it down because something might happen to you. A truck might run over you and that song would be gone. So I did write it down, put it in the piano bench, and that was where the song stayed for a couple of years. We tried to think of a name for it. Nothing ever fit. And then in 1983, some good friends of ours had a little baby girl named Rachel. And her parents asked me and Linda to be her godparents. So at Rachel's christening service, Linda and I are sitting there you know, on in the bench at the church and, and the uh, listening to the minister say his wonderful words about little Rachel. And at the front of the church was a grand piano sitting on the platform. It had caught my eye as soon as I walked into the place, but sitting there and I'm thinking about that piano. And at the end of the formal part of the service, I said, hey, hey, Linda, what do you think about me playing this little tune now as part of this service? Seems like it might have fit. So she said, okay, great. So I went up to the front and approached the minister and the family and said, it would be okay if I played a special little song at this point. And they said, sure. So I went over to the piano, sat down, and played this tune. And I got most of the way through it. I hear some sniffles in the background and some <clears throat> clearing their throats. And, you know, it's getting a little emotional. I'm, in fact, a little, I had a few tears coming down my cheeks. Uh, you know, a, a christening service with a little quick, sweet little baby is is touching anyway. And so this just kind of turned on the tear ducts. But um, at the end of the song, I looked over at uh, little Rachel in the arms of her mother. And I said, from now on, this song will be called Rachel's Song in her honor. And this, the name of the song fit perfectly and everybody was happy. And, and so that's how it got its name. 
Now, little did I know what was in lay in the future for me because of this little song called Rachel's Song. Fast forward three years, I was doing some traveling for Western Electric around the country to different factories. And AT&T or Western Electric had a factory in Nashville, Tennessee. So I was having to spend some weeks at a time there in Nashville. We were cutting over some new software for the factory. And, and so Linda said, well, while you're in Nashville, why don't you go get a demo recording made of Rachel's song? Oh, it sounds good because, you know, Nashville is Music City, USA. There's hundreds of studios there. So I said, OK. So one evening after work, I go driving around Nashville looking for a studio. And I go over to the part of town called Music Square. And for those of you familiar with Nashville, it's the two block square area, basically, that has everything musical in it. Got the Country Music Hall of Fame, the Songwriters Hall of Fame and uh, BMI and ASCAP. Lots of studios, RCA studios, the old uh, studio that you can tour. And so I thought, well, I should find one in here. Well, it was about six o'clock, six, six thirty at night. Everything seemed to be closed. But I, I was driving down this one street called Roy Acuff Place. Now, Roy Acuff, you may remember, was a famous uh, country music star in Nashville and Grand Ole Opry. And so they named the street after him. And so on the end of Roy Acuff Place on the right was a, a building that looked like a barn. It had a, the barn shaped roof to it. And out on the street side, it had a great big water wheel, a, a, literally a wheel that they had moved in from an old mill. And so on the side of the building, it said the music mill. I thought, okay, <laughs> this is encouraging. So I pull in the parking lot and I see that there's a man sitting at a desk in the lobby. So I go over and knock on the door. And he comes to the door and says, Hi, I'm George Clinton. Can I help you? And I said, I sure hope so. I'm looking for a studio to record a demo of a song. And he said, well, come on in. And uh, so I've come into this lobby and I look around the big room and over on my left and on the wall is a life-size picture of Glenn Campbell. And then here's a great big group portrait of the group Alabama and the Forrester sisters. And then there's gold records and platinum records all over the the walls around this place. <clears throat> so I thought, wow, this, this must be a classy place. So cause <laughs> I liked I liked all those musicians. And uh, I told George, I said, well, I, I've never been in a studio before. He said, well, come on, I'll, I'll give you a tour. And there's nobody recording right now. So we went over into the big studio, Studio A. So I go into this big room and ah, you could fit an orchestra in this big room. And had a great big nine foot grand piano over in the corner. And, you know, it was just obviously a, a place designed for recording. And he said, well, come on, let's go into the control room. Let me show you where all the, the fun stuff happens. And so he, we, he opens this great big thick door. It's about oh, eight inches thick, soundproof door, you know. And so he opens it up. We go into this control room. And in there, there's a console. It looks like about eight feet long with sliders and switches and knobs and You've probably seen those in a in a studio. Oh, yeah. that they're they're expensive pieces of equipment, and I think it probably had maybe thirty two tracks. You know, it was a long thing. And then he had recording machines around the wall and big big speakers, monitor speakers in there where you could hear what was being re recorded. I said, "Wow, how much does a place like this cost, George?" He said, "Well, it's one hundred and twenty five dollars an hour plus engineer." 
and uh, that was 1986, which if you roll that forward wow. to today's dollars, that's probably close to $400 an hour, which is very expensive. So he said, well, don't worry about it because I probably looked a little disappointed. He said, the fellow who owns this shop, this studio owns a small one across the street. And it's only $15 an hour plus engineer. I thought, well, that's, <laughs> that's my speed. Now all I need, George, <laughs> now all I need is somebody to play it for me. I, uh, who would you recommend as a good piano player, a good musician to play it? He thought for a second. He says, I know just the right person. He says, his name is Gary Prim, P-R-I-M. And he said, I go to Sunday school with him and to church. And he's a great session piano player, a musician, keyboardist. Give we'll, uh, we'll go over in the office and I'll look his phone number up for you and give him a call. He'll do it for you. So he did, wrote down the number for me. And I went back to my hotel, called Gary Prim as soon as I got there. Now, remember, this was before cell phones. I, today, you'd, I'd have picked up the phone right then and called him. But this was before cell phones were even invented. And uh, so I called him from the hotel, got his answering machine. About 30 minutes, he calls me back. He says, this is Gary. Uh, can I help you? And I said, yep. And told him what I needed. And he said, oh, I'll be happy to do that for you. Uh, anything for George Clinton, and I can do that just fine. So uh, he said, send me a recording of you playing it and, a, and a, a lead sheet, a copy of the lead sheet. And I said, well, okay, but what's a lead sheet? <laughs> I didn't even know what a lead sheet was. I was really naive, as they say, green behind the ears. But um uh, so uh, he explained that it was just the uh, the notes and the chords written out on a piece of paper, I, which I, I said, well, I, I have that, but I just didn't know what to call it. So I got back home, mailed Gary the lead sheet and the recording. Two weeks later, we meet in the studio on Friday, uh, August the 22nd, 1986 at 6 p.m. Never forget it. And Gary comes in this little studio carrying his synthesizer under his arm and I meet him for the first time. He sets up his uh, synthesizer and sits down at the piano. They had a little baby grand. This little studio had a baby grand Yamaha piano, which I later learned was the first Yamaha piano ever shipped to Nashville from from Japan. Oh, so this wow. so this was kind of a, a really historic piano. I didn't know that at the time, of course. So Gary starts playing, and and. Uh, Pretty soon he's ready to record, and I'm in the control room with the engineer. And so he he says, uh, "I'm ready." So engineer pushes record on there and says, "We're rolling." And <laughs> you know, that was the, the the key for him to start playing. So Gary plays through most of the song, and then he stops and he said, "Well, I, I think I can do a better job than that. Just rewind it and let's start over." Second time through, he nailed it all the way through. No mistakes, no problems. And then I was blown away. Now, remember, I had never heard my song played by anybody but me. So I had no idea what kind of arrangement he would do for my song, anything. And I was blown away because what I was hearing sounded as good to me as any piece of music I'd ever heard on the radio. I mean, it was just professional sounding quality. And uh, so then I thought, well, that's great. And then Gary says, well, no, I'm not finished. He said, we're going to make this into something really special. He said, what I want to do is I'm going to take the piano part and I'm going to double it on the synthesizer on an electric piano sound. I'm going to play exactly what I did there over here. And that'll make it sound fuller and, and a much richer sound. So after he after the first verse, then he starts in the chorus 
with the electric piano part. He's, you know, he's got the headset on and he's listening to the original piano part in his headset and playing the electric piano. And then he says, well, I need to add some strings. We want to give this song some, he called it, we want to give it some bottoms, some, some low strings and some tops, some high strings. So he, two more tracks re to record and we do the low strings part. And he's, he plays that along with the other parts, do the high strings. And then he, right in the middle of the song, after the second verse, he instantly changed keys, which I had not done. He changed keys from the key of C to the key of C sharp, up half a step, instantly. And uh, he said, I want right around that. He said, I want to put in some horns to give it a little more punch here. So two more tracks and put some horns in there. And then he said, oh, I think that's that's it. So he comes into the control room. We all sit there and the engineer rewinds the, the tape and plays the whole thing back. And I couldn't believe what I was hearing. This just was blew me away. Absolutely. So Gary says, well, I'm happy with it. If you are, I said, happy is not, that's an understatement. I, I love it. And so I paid him, I wrote him a check for the agreed upon fee and he got his synthesizer and left. And when he left, of course, I had just met him and I had no idea whether I'd ever see that young man ever again. However, it would turn out that Gary and I would end up going into the studio and record over 170 songs, 120 or so of which I had written myself. And this was over a period of uh, the next uh, 14, 15 years. We, I would meet with Gary in the studio. He and I became so close. We're still close. We we've email or text or talk you know, very, very regularly. And he is just such, he and his family are just like they're like brothers and sisters to, to me and my wife, Linda. So that's how the song got recorded. And that one demo song. Now, for those of you that listen to my music on my website, like you did, Ryan, what you yeah, heard on yeah. Rachel's song, that was the original demo recording that I did in that with Gary in that studio un, unaltered. That is the original recording. So what you're hearing is exactly what I heard that evening in 1986. Wow. So that, that whole journey, I have to ask, you're, you're recording and, and you're, you're finishing it out. What actually gets you from being somebody that's working for someone else to the point of entrepreneurship, music, and, and working full-time? Is there a trigger in between all of this to where he records it, it gets released, and some extra steps in between? Yes, but perhaps I should back up a little bit and, and, tell, and tell your audience that all my life, I have been somebody who has been enterprising. I'm not sure how you other you would describe it was anytime there was an opportunity to do something extra, I was always wanting to do it, whether it was to make some additional money or whatever. I'm just a very inquisitive, act, active kind of person. Even when I was in the sixth grade, I, I grew Irish potatoes in our garden and sold them to my elementary school <laughs> to make some money. I mean, you know, so since I was a kid, I was very enterprising. And, and, and like probably a lot of people, you, even though you're working in a good job for a good company, uh, I was working for Western Electric, you know, for, and AT&T for 22 and a half years. Well, but even in the back of your mind, when you're working for somebody else, you're not the boss. You're not in charge of your own time. You're you're not the master of your own total destiny. Yeah, you have a 
master of wow, how well you do in the job you're in. <clears throat> but you can't just jump over into somebody else's job at your own. <laughs> somebody else has to make that decision. So I think in the back of my mind, I have always wanted to be independent. And uh, uh, perhaps uh, I think my mother would probably tell you that uh, that I was very independent as a child, <laughs> which got me into trouble a lot. But uh, but wanting to work for yourself, it was always kind of in the back of my mind. And so anytime an opportunity would come along where I thought, well, maybe I should do this or maybe I should try that. So I, I kept educating myself. You know, it's important, I think, to invest in your own self, even when you're working for somebody else. You know, I have some books here that I, they're, they're, I think they're still in print, but like here's one I just called The Magic of Thinking Book. It was, uh, who knows when this is, probably in the 1970s, but whatever, but it's a great book about thinking big, you know, think beyond yourself. And here's another one from a really great guy called Maxwell Maltz. It's called, he's the author of Psycho-Cybernetics and the Magic Power of Self-Image Psychology. So reading these kind of books about feeding your own mind and your own ambitions and and learning beyond just your education in, in school. Yeah, I have my MBA from Wake Forest, but that'll only get you so far. <clears throat> what you really need is to put a lot of good stuff in here in your mind so that uh, when the opportunities do come along, you'll be prepared. And so that's one of the things that got me at least uh, sensitized, I think, to an opportunity as it came along. And you so asked, can we, sorry, go ahead. I, I was, was going to say now the, the music, how the music fit into that was what was the trigger was when I played the recording of Rachel's song for anybody. The response was just overwhelming. It got played on the radio, uh, to, on a local radio station, which generated phones coming into that radio station. It overwhelmed them. And the station manager called me and said, I've never had this happen at my radio station before. This song is just causing us, and I guess in today's vernacular, it, was, it went viral. You know, everybody wanted to hear, <laughs> they wanted to hear this song. Well, if, if you're a student of entrepreneurship and business, the, the seeds of any kind of new business is when you have an overwhelming demand for something and people want it. That should send off a big red flag to everybody that said that's an entrepreneur saying, well, here is an opportunity. I better jump on it and find out how I can do Go this. Go for it. Yes, Go yes. for it. So, yes, that was the trigger was when I had the recording, got it played, and I saw the response from everybody that heard it. I said, OK, this is the seed of my perhaps getting to do something um, for myself in the future. So that that planted the seed to get you to where that started. How did the next steps play out? And and the reason why I ask is we're in a little bit of a different generation uh, today to where, unfortunately, we look for instant gratification because of social media and the Internet, and mm -hmm. it plays out differently in life. Explaining or, or giving some background of how you took that step from there once you got that red flag and you're like, oh man, this is, this is it to, okay, this is the next steps and kind of taking, I say, taking the bull by the horns mm -hmm. and making that leap. How does, how does that play out? Because today that seems to be a little, and I, and I say this is, is loosey goosey because we don't seem to take those opportunities um, seriously. 
because mm-hmm. they, they don't come along very often. And if they're presented to us, sometimes we let them go. And, and, and I'm still trying to figure that out in, in today's generations of you're presented an idea or a, a, an, idea, an opportunity to do something, but you don't want to really do it because it comes with a lot of hard work. And I think we're missing some of that. Yes, uh, there's there's one rule, I think, for uh, succeeding in any kind of entrepreneurial business, and that is to take action. Uh, there's a wonderful book written by my, my now my good friend, Jack Canfield, called The Success Principles. Read it. This is this this is a wonderful it's like a Ph.D. in business, really, in one little yes. book. But you recall that he talks a lot about taking action. If if you have an idea or something is something comes across your path and you just don't take any action, nothing's ever going to happen. And so that was in my case, I saw that my music touched people. It, you know, the title of my book now is called Touched by the Music. Well, that was really the, the that's kind of the in a nutshell, what is the, the seed for my, my music business? It touched people. It touched me and it touched everybody that heard it. And so my mind then was saying, how can I monetize this? How can I turn this into a business? Well, and back then, music was sold and heard off of cassette tapes. And then in the late 80s, CDs came around. And uh, so I had to figure out, well, how can I get my music sold to people that want? I I knew if they heard it, they wanted to buy it. But I had to. How do I get them to, first of all, to hear it? And then how do I provide them the product and distribute it to them so they can take it home with them? Well, um, basically, um, I started to approach the big box stores, you know, that sold music. Got nowhere. And as for any of your entrepreneurs that are have trying to sell a product, a new product, if you go to like a Lowe's or a Walmart or whatever, and you have a new product, it is a huge process to get your product carried by that, that big box store. Well, back then they didn't want to have anything to do with me and my music either. I wasn't a big name. I didn't have a, a popularity of, of an instant name recognition. So that, that was very discouraging. And it wasn't until a friend of mine that I worked with asked me if she could give one of my CDs of Rachel's song to a friend of hers who owned a gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria. Now, I was working at the time with AT&T in Bethesda, Maryland, real close to Old Town, Alexandria. And so I said, well, sure. So I gave her a CD to give to her friend, Jane, that owned this gift shop. The gift shop's name was America. She sold Americana (laughs) things. And it was, you know, anything red, white, and blue, patriotic, she sold it in that shop. Wonderful shop. I think they're still in business to this day. Wow. Uh, um, Anyway, so she gave CD to Jane at at the America gift shop. A couple of days later, I get a phone call from Jane at the gift shop. And she says, Dave, I'm Jane. I own this uh, gift shop. I have a problem. Uh, Every time I play Rachel's song, CD on my CD system and the store system, everybody comes over to the counter and says, what in the world is that music you're playing? I want to buy that and take it home with me. She says, well, I don't have it for sale. So can we do, can we do some business? I said, well, I guess so. Now at this point I had never sold my music at a wholesale retail situation. So we agreed on a wholesale price. I think it was like $8 for the CD at wholesale and, she was going to sell it for 14 or 15. <clears throat> and that sounded fair to me. 
and the cost to produce a CD was somewhere around a dollar and something. So, you know, margin is important, by the way. If, if you're ever going to do any business modeling, you better look yeah. at your margins because if you don't have any margin, you're, you're going to have a hard time. Exactly. So I had a fairly good margin at $8 from one. So I made about 6 or $7. And so she made about the same amount on the retail part. So that was a good arrangement. And I, she, she said, when can you bring them? I said, well, I'll, my wife and I, we, we, want to, we love to come to Old Town Alexandria anyway. We'll bring you a box tonight. So we did. And uh, she called me about three or four days later and says, Dave, those are all gone. <laughs> and this time, how about bringing me twice as many? So we did that. And we made that trip every week for over a year. And she sold thousands of tapes and CDs out of that one little gift shop. Wow. And so there again was the impetus for, okay, an idea of, you know, once you see something that works, you think, well, how can I do more of this? And so I'm, I thought, well, I made me a spreadsheet. And remember, I'm a computer person, so obviously I'm going to do a spreadsheet, right? So I did the get her gift shop. I said, here's how many CDs she sold, here how many tapes she sold, here much, how much I sold them to her for. And here's how much it costs me, and the difference is what I made. And you multiply all that out down at the bottom is your gross profit. Well, over a period of time, she was it, the numbers were really impressive. Uh, how much gross profit I was making uh, on those wholesale sales. So I made another column in my spreadsheet, which is I said, well, suppose I could just find one gift shop in every state. Let's just do fifty. Let's not get greedy. Let's just do 50. So I did that, and 50 times column one is in column two. Oh, okay. Well, that's a pretty good number down at the bottom there. And then I said, well, what if we just did five? Five gift shops in every state. So that's 250. Third, third column is 250 times column one. And down here at the bottom is a gross profit. I said, Linda, come here. you got to look at this. I said, that's three times what I'm making at, at AT&T. <laughs> I said, I think uh, we, we, the, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what we got to do. <laughs> we got to figure out how can we duplicate this one gift shop, America, all across the entire country and get our number of gift shops uh, playing and selling my music up to that number. So that's when the, 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 the trigger really, I, I saw that it could work for me, that, that basically I could supplant my income at my regular salary job with my entrepreneur job. And so, you know, the, 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 your podcast chasing financial freedom, I was that, that was my ticket to financial freedom in my mind at that point. Now there was a lot of, as you said, there was a lot of work between that one gift shop and getting the thousand over a thousand that I ended up getting in the end. But and in today's time, it would probably be a little easier with the Internet and Google. didn't have Google, didn't have the Internet, didn't have email. All we had was a telephone and U.S. mail. So you, that, that's that's pretty limiting. <laughs> I, I have to ask, how many cold calls did you make? Oh, my gosh, I made so many. And here's how the call would go. I would say I would call up a gift shop cold and say, do you do you sell any? cassette tapes or CDs of the music that you play in your shop. They'd either say, no, we don't play music. Well, thank you very much. Hang up. Yeah, we play music, but I don't sell it. I said, well, have you ever thought about it? And I'd get into a discussion about people asking about the music and if they would seem to be fairly open-minded about possibly selling the music, I'd send them a sample, you know, a, 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 a package of information. 
mm-hmm. or very rarely back then, very rarely, I would get somebody that, yeah, we sell the music and of course I'd send them a sample. I would have to make 30 phone calls to get one yes that I could send them a package. Wow. One, so I had to get used to hearing <laughs> no 29 times before I'd get a yes. Now that's a lot of phone calls. My phone bill, I've got it in a paper bill and they itemized every call. Most of them were 13 seconds with all the no's. And then you'd see one that was two minutes and that was a yes. But my phone bill came in a box the size of a shoe box. Oh I, I am not kidding you. It was ima- unbelievable. And so I did make a bunch of phone calls. But see, today, if we let's strip out the Internet, strip out email, strip out Google. If you think about it today, there's not too many people that are going to actually pick up the phone and just, I call it dialing for dollars. Uh, I come from a background of call centers. I come from a background of collections. So I understand the the concept. I even did door knocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today that's just not going to happen. And, and that's, that's what I'm talking about. This is a dying breed because there's that personal connection that you can make with potential connections or people you're going to do business with by just having a conversation. And that just doesn't seem to happen anymore. Yeah. The we're in a very fast paced world. In some ways things have gotten easier because like you said, you can find somebody's phone number, just Google them and boom, you got their phone number, contact address, everything. But there's also you and millions of other people that can do the same thing. So you're in a, not only a crowded marketplace, you're in a busy, noisy marketplace. So how do you break through that noise? You know, today, if I had to start over today doing gift shops, I would fall flat because now everybody, all the gift shops, all of them play and sell. Most of them, the, the chains sell their own music. You know, if you go into Cracker Barrel and buy the CDs, guess who made the CD? Oh, made by Cracker Barrel. <laughs> you know, they've, they've, they've reversed, uh, what do you call it, backward uh, integration. They've integrated backward and make their own. Yep, Same yep. with some of the gift shops, you know. So it's, it's a very, it's still a lot of work, no matter what you're into with a, your business. Your financial freedom is only going to be attained usually by a lot of hard work and sweat and, you know, you sweat equity into the thing. You've got to spend the time and you got to figure out also how to do it smartly. You can spin your wheels and do something and confuse activity with accomplishment real quickly. Just because I'm making 29 phone calls and getting one, that was not very efficient. And I realized very quickly I had to do something to get that down to a much better hit rate. And I did. I'm a math a math major, a physics minor. I'm very analytical. I said I had noticed immediately that the places that I called that I had the most success were in tourist areas, tourist towns, because in tourist towns, you know, they're, they got lots of new people coming in and wonderful people want to buy gifts to take home with them and that kind of thing. So I was having really good luck in tourist towns. But I didn't know where all the tourist towns were. Now, I knew, sure, I knew where Gatlinburg, Tennessee was, and I knew where Occoquan, Virginia, and uh, places like that that were uh-huh. places I had been to myself. But I didn't know where the gift shops were in Missouri or Kansas or California or other places. And But I knew that if I just didn't, if I just called at, at random, I was going to have to make 30 phone calls to get one. So I, I knew I needed to find tourist towns. 
So I, I wanted to surely that somebody had a list, you know, Chamber of Commerce, the State Department of Commerce surely had a list of their tourist towns. Turns out they didn't. Uh, that was a foreign term. To, there wasn't a data element called <laughs> tourist town. Wow. And so I had to figure out another way to identify tourist towns. Well, there's two characteristics that I came up with being an analytical person of a tourist town. Number one, how many gift shops does this little town have? Well, gosh, Gatlinburg, Tennessee probably has 75, 85, maybe even 100 gift shops. And how many people have a permanent residence in Gatlinburg, Tennessee? Well, not very many, actually. It turns out that maybe, I don't know, 2,000, maybe more than that now, but it was a small number. The point is that there's no way that that permanent population could support that large number of gift shops. And so what I really needed was the ratio of population per gift shop, right? And that ratio should tell you whether or not it's a tourist town or not. You go into New York City and do a, a population and a gift shop, it's going to be a tiny fraction. But it's uh, in a tourist town, it's going to be a very few. I mean, a, in a New York, it's going to be a big number. In a small tourist town, it's going to be a small number. Well, I needed the data. Today, you just go online and get the data. You know, yeah, Very <laughs> easy then, to get the data nowadays. Yep. Back then, I didn't have that luxury. So I had to purchase, literally buy a mailing list, a computer printout, hard copy of all the gift shops in the United States, all 75,000 of them. It was a printout about four, inch, four inches thick, single line spaced, alphabetical by town, by state. So I had the, now I had where all the gift shops were. Now I needed to know the population. So I've, I worked across the street from the public library. If you want to know any information these days, you can still go and ask a librarian. They know everything. <laughs> if they don't know, they know where it is anyway. So I've, I asked the lady, I said, how would I find out the population of all these the, the towns that I'm looking for? And she said, well, we've got this book. book, And I just happened to have the, the book with me. I want you to see this because this is this thing's heavy. I'm telling you, it weighs about 12 pounds. Wow. The 1990 Commercial Atlas Marketing Guide. Inside this book is maps, all kinds of wonderful maps of the country. But the big thing is in the back of it. I know you can't read this. But this is every little crossroad in the country and the population from the census. So you can look up any town in any crossroad in any place and get the number. Well, I ended up buying that book. It was like $125 or something. It's a lot of money back then, but boy, was it worth it. Then I had all the population numbers and I could go through my printout and count the gift shops. Gatlinburg, 175. I built me a, a spreadsheet with city, state, how many gift shops and what the population was. And then I had the computer calculate what the ratio of the population per gift shop was. That's the last column. Then I had the database, the spreadsheet sort itself by that, that ratios. So that there, I wanted the smallest ratio at the top from ascending order. And lo and behold, the tourist towns came to the top of the list in every state. Gatlinburg was the top of the list in Tennessee. Blowing Rock was the top of the list in North Carolina. Occoquan and some of these other places were tops in Virginia. You know, it was just obviously it worked. So then using that list, 
I started doing the telephone calls. Now, since I had the printout and had the phone numbers already, I'd go to right to that tourist town in Montana. Or, In fact, I would start on Saturday morning on the East Coast and call. And then as at 10 o'clock when the shops open in the, in the central time, I would start shifting to the central states, tourist towns. And then as it got to mountain time, I'd do the mountain you know, zone states and to the, finally to the Pacific time. And I called from 10 o'clock in the morning. So my voice, I really didn't call until they all closed because my voice would actually give out. I made so many phone calls. Like I said, my phone, phone bill came in a phone in a box, but I made thousands and thousands of phone calls. And my, my hit rate went from one in 30 though, to one in five and sometimes even better. Oh, wow. So the, so the point of that story is be smart about what you do. Figure out ways to use big data or data or always constantly ask yourself when you're doing something that part of it is totally nonproductive. In other words, you didn't have any hit. How can I do have a better hit rate or how can I be more efficient at what I'm doing? And think about how that how you can do that. It may not be uh, totally what I did with my gift shops, but usually in most businesses, there is a way to they, I think they call it in, in most of they call it a sales funnel, right? Yes. You have a, a big, big prospects and then you narrow it down and narrow it down. And finally you get down hopefully to a conversion at the bottom, but how to get that down to a really tight number. That's very efficient is a real secret to success. If you're going to make a real go of your business. And that's, and that's what makes all this tie this all into today's society is a lot of people are not wanting to do that hard work that you put in uh, to get their business to where they're at or whatever they're trying to accomplish. It's it's unfortunately there's some instant gratification there. And that's why, you know, chasing financial freedom is something I've gone after is just for the simple fact it's hard work. The podcasts that I have, they were all Johnny side hustles. They were just passion projects behind mm-hmm. three other businesses that that kind of changed everything. And now They've become more than just Johnny side hustles. They've become businesses. They're 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 starting to flourish on their own, and, and it's just for time and effort. But the thing that is that I take away from your story is the dedication, the time, the effort, the persistence that you've put into getting your song out to as many uh, people as you possibly could. But you dug into the process to get the numbers to where they needed to be mm-hmm. uh, in today's society and in, in what we're doing, that's a lot easier to be done today. Cause you can, like you said, pull everything up, but the dedication is the piece that misses today that you have, that you were relentless because you were so passionate about something that you loved to put it out to so many people. Exactly. And then that's really the, the subject of my book is that, uh, the, the, the stories of how I made this journey are in my book. And I hope those of you that like these kind of entrepreneurial stories will go on Amazon and get my, my book. You can get it Kindle, paper, paperback, or you can get an audible. I'm, I'll read it to you for eight hours if you want me to. <laughs> <laughs> but, we'll, you know, those, we'll definitely put it in the show notes for you too. Yeah. So we'll, we'll link it all in there for you. But those stories are, you know, you, it may not, you may not be a musician or whatever, but the lessons learned that I learned along the way, are applicable no, no matter what kind of business you're in. And it's those lessons of persistence and ingenuity and 
and always being uh, looking for better ways to do something and and putting in the time. I mean, taking action. You when you see an opportunity. You don't stand on your behind or sit on your behind and think about it for two years. You, you, you better take some action. Now, you don't want to take just blind action either because you can waste a lot of time and energy and money if you're chasing after the wrong rabbit. But uh, you need to be smart about it. But, but you need to at least be attuned and have your antenna up so that when an opportunity comes along, you think, hmm, I better check this out. And we have ways of checking things out these days that uh, we didn't have 30, 40 years ago. You can do a ton of research on your own on the Internet and check something out every which way from Sunday and and, uh, and be smart about it. Yes, and it's it's being in tune, but also putting the time and effort into it. And that's the biggest piece that I'm taking away from your story is the persistence, pushing, going after what you want. But then, as you said, when the antennas go up, you do something about it. And it's the action piece that is, Mm -hmm. I think, is rewarding because that's what I live by is if I see an uh, opportunity and I don't at least check it out, I feel like, did I miss something? And I I start scratching my head. So I I try to be open to anything, but there's sometimes where my plate's full and I I just, I can't, I can't do it. So I have to move forward. But ultimately, taking action one way or the other is is the name of the game. And that's really where we're at today in life is, Hey, if you want something better or you want to go after something, it's taking action. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Couldn't agree more. Well, sir, this has been a great conversation. Your, your storytelling and what you share is inspiring one, but two, what you did was phenomenal because (laughs) me not being, uh, not, I grew up with the telephone and the rotary dial and everything, but not having to dial for dollars then, because when I got into the industry, there was, there was dialers and we would manual dial and there was still help. But I do remember crisscrosses and and all that other stuff that we had to do to find people. And that was a pain. And you didn't have any of those items when you were doing this. So that is phenomenal. And what you did is remarkable. And, And thank you for sharing your story with the audience. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I, I enjoy talking about it. And my my really my my desire is that I will perhaps say something that will trigger a, a thought with somebody else that can take it and take some action. And and who knows where it may lead to. Yes, there's a lot to be taken out of that. I, I've got a lot to digest, but I want to thank you again for coming on. I definitely look forward to having you on in the future. We can have some more conversation about all this because there's, I'm sure there's plenty more we can talk about. Absolutely. Yeah. Sir, thank you for coming on and I will talk to you later. Thank you, Ryan. It's been my pleasure. All right. Bye-bye.